Whoever you are, we welcome you. Wherever you come from, we welcome you. Whomever you love, we welcome you. My name is Lori McGee, and it is my privilege to serve as worship associate for today's service. I am joined today by Scott Pifo, who is leading today's service. Scott is a freelance journalist, published author, and recovering lawyer from Akron. As part of his commitment to social justice, he sits on far too many boards, including the UU Church of Akron Board of Trustees, UU Justice Ohio, the Akron Press Club, Literary Akron, and until recently, the Immigrant Service Organization Asian Services in Action, or Asia Inc. Much to his surprise, he is now transitioning to serve for a year as the interim CEO of Asia Inc. In his spare time, he teaches writing at Kent State University. Scott and I are delighted to welcome you to this religious community. Hi, everybody. Good morning. It's auction time again. Our biggest fundraiser of the year will be held on Saturday, December 1st at 6 p.m. at the Kent United Church of Christ. For folks new to the auction season, today starts the two months of creative thinking, collaboration, and planning for what to donate, what events and dinners to offer, what to bid on and buy at the auction, and it culminates with a big party. If you want to find out more, you can visit the auction website, which is togetherauction.org slash dot com slash can't you you. Thank you. Um, and um, there's more information in the thread from uh, in the thread from the web in your order of service or see an auction team member at the table downstairs in Fessenden Hall during coffee hour from now until the auction. The theme this year is the lovers, the dreamers and you you. This year, we're called to envision our future and dream big. The theme references a song from the Muppet movie called The Rainbow Connection. So I'm going to (laughs) sing. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? Envision our auction, a rainbow of people, events, baskets, ticket, landslide. What's so amazing, the connections we're making, the money we raise magnified. Someday we'll have space in the new fellowship hall, enough room for everyone inside. Have you a special gift or craft that you barter? A skill where you're well qualified. Why not donate it and offer it to others? Trust me, we'd be gratified. So join us in December. Save the date, please remember. And one more thing I'd like you to do. If you like planning parties, our auction team needs help, please. The lovers, the dreamers, and you, you. Our chalice will be lit this morning by Rob and Riley Waltz. These words are from W.E.B. Du Bois. 
Now is the accepted time, not tomorrow, not some more convenient season. It is today that our best work can be done, and not some future day or future year. It is today that we fit ourselves for the greater usefulness of tomorrow. Today is the seed time. Now are the hours of work, and tomorrow comes the harvest and the playtime. Love is but the song we sing Fear's the way we die We can make the mountains ring Or make the angels cry We know the dove is on the wing Though we don't know why Come on people now Smile on each other, everybody get together Try to love one another right now Some may come and some may go But we must surely pass When the one that left us here Returns for us at last But a moment sunlight fading on the grass Come on people now, smile on each other Everybody get together, try to love one another right now Come on people now, smile on each other get together, try to love one another right now. If you hear the song I sing, you will understand. Listen, you hold the key to love and fear, all in your trembling hands. Just one key unlocks them both It's there at your command Come on, people now Smile on each other Everybody get together Try to love one another right now Come on, people now Smile on each other Everybody get together Try to love one another right now. I invite you to settle in for worship with these words from Norman V. Naylor. Do not leave your cares at the door. Do not leave there your pain, your sorrow, or your joys. Bring them into this place of acceptance and forgiveness. Place them on the common altar of life and offer them to the possibility of your worship. Come then and offer yourselves to potential transformation by the creative process that flows through you and all life. Our prayer this morning is by Audette Fulbright Folson. 
called A Prayer for Hopelessness. Will you please join me now in the spirit of this prayer or meditation as is your practice. The days that come and carry away your spirit, your spark, bow down. Lay your head on the hard earth and let your brokenness join the death that is stirring there. Life rebels against death, takes the very dust of our bones and renews it into glory. You were made for life, and life does not intend to let you go. But rest, you can. Decay and falling away from ourselves are part of that process. If you need to fall apart, then do. For life will hold you in that, too. We'll teach you how to desiccate and blow away, and then we'll call you back from the four corners of the earth, and we'll renew you with the water of the tears of others who, like you, weep for all that is lost. She will breathe back into you the breath that washes from the mouths of children laughing, from the lion's roar, from the exhalation of trees. You will be reborn into the arms of beloveds, and together we will sing a new song. Amen. And blessed be. Our reading today uh, comes from Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie from her novel Americana. And I will mention I'm coming, getting over a cold, so if my voice kicks out, don't blame Brad. That's just. <clears throat> Princeton in the summer smelled of nothing. And though if, if MLU liked the tranquil greenness of the many trees, the clean streets and stately homes, the delicately overpriced shops and the quiet abiding air of earned grace. This was, it was this, the lack of smell that most appealed to her. Perhaps because the other American cities she knew had all smelled distinctly. Philadelphia had the musty scent of history. New Haven smelled of neglect. Baltimore smelled of brine and Brooklyn of sun warmed garbage, but Princeton had no smell. But she did not like that she had to go to Trenton to braid her hair. It was unreasonable to expect a braiding salon in Princeton. The few black locals she had seen were so light-skinned and lank-haired she could not imagine them wearing braids. And yet as she waited at Princeton Junction Station for the train on the afternoon ablaze with heat, she wondered why there was no place where she could braid her hair. The chocolate bar in her handbag had melted. A few other people were waiting on the platform, all of them white and lean, in short, flimsy clothing. The man standing closest to her was eating an ice cream cone. She had always found it a little irresponsible, the eating of ice cream cones by grown-up American men, especially the eating of ice cream cones by grown-up American men in public. He turned to her and said, about time when the train finally creaked in with the familiarity strangers adopt with each other after sharing in the disappointment of a public service. She smiled at him. The graying hair on the back of his head was swept forward, a comical arrangement to disguise his bald spot. He had to be an academic, but not in the humanities or he would be more self-conscious. A firm science like chemistry maybe, 
Before, she would have said, I know, in that peculiar American expression that professed agreement rather than knowledge. And then she would have started a conversation with him to see if he would say something that she could use in her blog. People were flattered to be asked about themselves, and if she said nothing after they spoke, it made them say more. They were conditioned to fill silences. If they asked what she did, she would say vaguely, I write a lifestyle blog, because saying, I write an anonymous blog called Race Teenth or Various Observations About American Blacks, those formerly known as Negroes, by a non-American black would make them uncomfortable. She had said it, though, a few times, once to a dreadlocked white man who sat next to her on a train, his hair like old twine ropes that ended in blonde fuzz, his tattered shirt worn with enough piety to convince her that he was a social warrior and might make a good guest blogger. Race is totally overhyped these days. Black people need to get over themselves. It's all about class now, the haves and the have-nots, he told her evenly. And she used it as the opening sentence of a post titled, Not All Dreadlocked White American Guys Are Down. (laughs) Then there was the man from Ohio who was squeezed next to her on a flight, a middle manager she was sure from his boxy suit and contrast collar. She wanted to know what he, she meant by he wanted to know what she meant by lifestyle blog, and she told him, expecting him to become reserved or to end the conversation by saying something defensively bland, like "the only race that matters is the human race." But he said, "Ever write about adoption? Nobody wants black babies in this country, and I don't mean biracial; I mean black. Even black families don't want them." He had told her that he and his wife had adopted a black child and their neighbors looked at them as though they had chosen to become martyrs for a dubious cause. Her blog post about him, badly dressed white, Amer- white middle managers from Ohio are not always what you think, had received the highest number of comments for that month. She still wondered if, if he had read it. She hoped so. Good morning and greetings from Akron. Uh, I want to thank Lori for inviting me to talk to you today. Uh, When she and I spoke at Summer Institute, she mentioned particular interest in the social justice work being done at the Akron Church. I'm very proud of my home church. I feel free to brag shamelessly about the work we do because most of the work has been done by people other than me. So what most people know is that we're a sanctuary congregation we recently observed, didn't celebrate, but observed the one-year anniversary of bringing a family into sanctuary. And in addition, we do other immigration support work. We run a successful monthly community meal. We have growing ministries in racial justice and stewardship of the earth and a history of working with LGBTQ youth. Today, I, when, when Lori said, you know, this, is, this is what, I was like, you know, rather than give the nuts and bolts of what we did, I want to talk about a lesson learned along the way, um, and in particular about kind of a change in thought that underlies the work that we did that both came out of the work that we did and now informs it. The ideas for this take on our social justice work uh, came in the aftermath of a webinar I co-hosted for UU Justice Ohio. Uh, As Lori said, I'm uh, on the board there. Um, And they wanted a webinar about what Akron did. And there's a lot of nuts and bolts in there. You can go on YouTube slash UJO and and go watch it. Um, I think we did a pretty good job. 
Um, but at one point, one of the participants, an African-American, uh, asked what we were doing to address white supremacy within our church and within the work that we were doing. And that bit didn't go so great. If you go watch the webinar, you can enjoy my deer in headlights look as I <laughs> contemplated the question. In my defense, it's difficult as a white person to answer that question. I always wor worry about coming off like, oh, that white supremacy thing, totally figured out. We nailed that. Um, but I was also aware that it's only been recently that we as a church have begun to explicitly, intentionally require, inquire into the ways our church as a historically white institution bears artifacts of white supremacy and how we as a congregation might be uh, perpetuating it. So with all that running through my head, I stumbled through answering the question and moved on. But it's the sort of interaction that I don't know about you, but I tend to replay a lot. Uh, and so in the course of replaying that, I realized there's some things that my church has done right that are worth lifting up. And among them, we changed the conversation among ourselves about what often in our churches gets called diversity. And I've long been uncomfortable with the conversation that we have in UU churches about diversity of our congregation. Wouldn't it be better if we were more diverse? How do we get more diverse? And realizing that my church had moved to this new way of understanding the role of race within our membership helped crystallize those misgivings. And I realized that the way that diversity is treated within nominally liberal institutions is a good case study in how legacy white supremacy can inform and undermine what look like attempts to mend some of the wounds left by overtly racist policy. As a lawyer, I'm aware of the roots of diversity talk in the law. Diversity as a legal concept arises out of legal challenges to affirmative action programs. Under the rules set down by the Supreme Court, racial preferences in realms like college admissions are deemed to be a form of discrimination based on race. To justify discrimination based on race, a, an institution like a, a, a state institution like a university has to show a compelling state interest for doing so. And one of the compelling state interests that universities had historically offered and that the Supreme Court accepted until recently is the educational benefits of a diverse student body. So think about that. It's okay to uh, have preferences or, or other sort of uh, scale-tipping uh, standards that invite some more people of color into a group because of educational benefits. This concept of diversity starts with the assumption that the evil to be addressed is discrimination, and it's kind of like the discrimination on many sides, on many sides, right? By framing the problem as discrimination rather than a system of oppression to be dismantled, the court perpetuated a long history of that court in blocking attempts to repair the ongoing effects of systemic uh, uh, oppression. I could do another 20 minutes on that. The Supreme Court doesn't have a great history, but just take that as read. 
A student body salted with diversity via affirmative action will remain predominantly white, which means that most of the educational benefits for, of a diverse student body will inure to white students. Putting all this together, I understood why in the two decades plus of my membership in Unitarian Universalism, occasionally hearing how do we become more adverse left me a little itchy. We never had the conversation about why, and more importantly, for whose benefit. I believe that many white liberals are infected, and like the president, I use that word intentionally, infected with this model of how we invite people of color into predominantly and historically white institutions and white spaces. It's for us. We see benefits for ourselves as white congregants, but think too little about what benefit our diverse space might have for people of color that we wish were here. The problems with this construct should be clear. If a diversity is about us, we control it. We decide if it in fact isn't benefiting us. We decide the level of diversity which gives us that benefit and implicitly maintain the right to shut it off when we reach that level. And most importantly, it becomes rational for us to limit the work we do to achieve diversity to an amount of work commensurate with the benefit that we would get out of it. It should be clear why this kind of diversity is not acceptable if we want to do genuinely reparative anti-racism work. The alternative is to shift our reason for bringing people of color into our congregations from a rationale of diversity to a rationale of access. We should work toward creating equal access to all institutions that give people resources to live and improve their lives. That includes our churches, that includes this church. Changing our focus to access centers the people of color who enter our spaces rather than ourselves. More importantly, it places on us the duty and the burden to address the barriers that people of color will experience that might either deter them from entering our doors or disincline them to return. At this point, I want to acknowledge that some of you might be thinking, well, I want everyone to have access to schools and good credit and decent jobs, sure, but does it make that much of a difference? to do work to allow access to people of color to this church. We have to remember that we, as Unitarian Universalist churches, provide a singular service. We are a religious community for people who don't fit into most religious communities. We have members who are non-believers, members whose theology does not mesh with mainstream religions, and members who practice other faiths but find our values, our practice, and our embrace of difference makes our church a better spiritual home for them. We cannot assume that everyone who falls into one of those categories is going to be white. We must make ourselves available and open to all people because we don't know where the next person who needs us will come from. We know a good deal from some robust science that people who belong to re religious communities have better life outcomes than those who don't. They are healthier, they live longer, their kids do better, and so forth. The best hypothesis for why is that living in intentional community confers real benefits. I've seen this in my own life. Four years ago, my then teenage older daughter and I each suffered Serious, near-catastrophic health crises within a week of each other. Basically, she checked out of the hospital, and two days later, I was in the ambulance on my way in. 
We endured the first crisis as a family pretty well on our own, but my, felt, my illness felt like it was breaking us. And then we received pastoral care from our minister and cards from our congregation and, most importantly, food. When life seemed to be crumbling around us, the effect of a home-cooked meal on my psyche was astounding. I cherish the memory of receiving that hot food four years ago, the sense that we were cared for, the emotional space it gave us to heal. Uh, For a few days, we don't have to worry about this one thing. We can concentrate on dealing with the blows that we've suffered. At the same time, I mourn for the black or brown family that could have fit into one of our communities but found the barriers too much to overcome and did not receive the same sort of community care in an hour of need. So, how did the Akron Church move from an ethic of diversity to an ethic of access? It's a long story, but the short version is that for years, before we became a sanctuary congregation, members of our church had been doing on-the-ground work with immigrant families and with migrant uh, workers in Northern Stark County. As a result of that work, some of those families uh, started attending our church. That wasn't always easy, and it wasn't without detractors, but our church leadership was resolute, uh, and in fact, silently resolute, like just would not brook any dissent. Uh, Welcoming families is our norm, that is what we're doing. To take one symbolic but nonetheless important example, the affirmation in our church is said first in Spanish and then in English. So, signal, you are welcome here. For years, we worshiped beside Latinx immigrants, some or all of whom we knew were probably undocumented. We ate meals with them. Our children played with their children. Over time, we accepted without much fanfare the idea that they belonged in our church. They had as much right to access the benefits of membership as any of us. At some point, they stopped being those people. They became part of us. Looking back at our story, I'm most amazed by the way all of this came out of doing rather than studying or talking. One can easily get caught in the paralyzing apprehension that if we don't address white supremacy first, we can't do anything. It's especially easy to get caught in that when we belong to a church that, let's be real about it, really likes a lot of talk in its social justice work. What it took for us was people in our church doing the work. And by that, I mean dirt under the fingernails, roll up the sleeves, not entirely safe work of social justice. And this was important, guided by people who we partnered with that had longstanding ties to the community that we served. Our church has seen a steady increase in black and brown congregants. One good thing about welcoming, really welcoming people of color is that other people of color who visit see visually that there might be something okay about this place. Uh, My younger child is a youth of color who on more than one occasion has come home from a youth con saying, oh, you, you so white. But in our congregation, my kid sees black and brown faces and it makes a difference. It makes a difference to them and they have a pretty high tolerance for white people. (laughs) After all those years of internalizing the right of the immigrant families that we had worked with to our space, 
voting unanimously to become a sanctuary congregation was nearly a foregone conclusion. It was an incredibly easy meeting, given everything that we were risking, uh, given everything that that could have gone wrong, and especially given everything I have heard has happened in other congregations contemplating the same thing. So I want to be clear, we have experienced the benefits. We, as the white congregants, have experienced the benefits of a diverse congregation. We've also experienced ongoing challenges. But we got there, I believe, because we got out of our heads. We stopped thinking about diversity and instead looked for how we could make a difference. We've looked for how do we make this place a safe and welcoming place for the next person of color who comes through our doors. My message today is don't get distracted by the benefits. Concentrate on the mission. If we want to be a faith that stands for the worth and dignity of all persons, we need to operationalize that theological proposition by making our churches accessible to whoever might find a home here. The first step is figuring out what can be done out there. I wish you all the strength and journey, all the strength and courage on that journey. Strange, ain't it strange how color can make a man hate? Strange, ain't it strange how color can make a man kill? Kill another man's spirit, kill another man's soul, kill another man's body, keep him from growing. Strange, ain't it strange how color can make a woman hate? Strange, ain't it strange how color can make a woman kill? Kill another woman's spirit, kill another woman's soul. Kill another woman's body, keep her from growing old. Why can I not see the color of your heart? Why can I not see the color of your dreams? The color of your spirit, the color of your soul, the color of your thinking while you are growing old. Strange, ain't it strange how color can make a child hate? Strange ain't it strange how color can make a child kill. Kill another child's spirit, kill another child's soul, kill another child's body, keep them from growing old. Now tell me, what is the color of love in black, brown, yellow, or white? 
What's the color of kindness? Black, brown, yellow, or white? If the loving people were all one color, what would happen then? If the angry people were all one color, we'll hate the end. We'll hate finally end. intellectuals and successful authors, but it's equally important to lift up our autodidacts, our street poets, and our park bench philosophers. Our closing words are from the DJ and YouTuber Jay Smooth. There is nothing that does more to perpetuate injustice than good people who assume that injustice is caused by bad people. All of us as good people are naturally prone to do bad things. We all have tendencies toward implicit bias and prejudice and bad habits. And one of those bad habits is if you work in a field where the status quo is unjust for others but comfortable for you, you will tend to make decisions that preserve your comfort and thus preserve the unjust status quo if you don't make a constant conscious commitment to do otherwise. If I just believe that I am a just person and therefore my choices are just, I'm going to be part of the problem. I can only be just, I can only be good if I commit every day to the learning of the craft of being good, to practicing the craft of being good. As you leave this place of free and fearless inquiry, contemplate these words by Derek Bell. Courage is a decision you make to act in a way that works through your own fear for the greater good as opposed to pure self-interest. Courage means putting at risk your immediate self-interest for what you believe is right. Go in peace.